This morning we are continuing our, our summer study of the book of Leviticus. And we are coming up into this section this morning that has to do with things which are clean and unclean. My guess is that most of us have different working definitions of what it means to be clean. I want to give you some examples of of how we sort of land in different places on on that definition. So I'm going to give you a quick quiz this morning. You can play along with the people in the pew next to you. So I'm going to show you an image. You tell me whether you think this is clean or unclean, okay, in your own estimation. Ready? All right, there are two rooms here pictured. Are they both clean? Is one clean, one unclean? Take about 15 seconds and compare notes. And if there's someone under the age of 10, make sure you get their input, okay, on this conversation. Go ahead. What do you think? Clean or unclean? All right, who says, who says this room is clean? Who says this room is clean? Okay, a few hands. Who says they're both clean? All right. All right, how about this one? Wearing shoes in the house, okay? Is it no big deal or no way? What do you think, clean or unclean? You can compare with the person next to you. Shoes in the house, yes or no? All right, who says shoes are only clean if they're kept by the doorway? Clean. Who says anywhere? They can go anywhere in the house. Both clean. All right. So we're divided there. All right. One last one. How about these two things? Can they go together? Ketchup and eggs. All right. Clean or unclean? What do you think? Who says eggs need to be kept separate? All right. Who says you can mix these two things? No problem. All right. Again, about 50-50. What was that? Tabasco sauce. Okay. A different, different standard. Okay, a big part of what goes, I think, into our personal definitions of cleanliness has largely to do with what we feel belongs together and what we think needs to be kept separate, kept apart. Right? Do socks belong in the middle of the floor or do they need to be put in a drawer? Right? Can shoes enter any part of the house or do they need to be kept in a, in a hall closet? And depending on our age, depending on our personality, maybe the the family or culture we grew up in, we end up with some pretty different ideas about what's meant to be together and what's meant to be kept separate. Last week, though, in Leviticus chapter 10, we ran into a passage that was essentially about the bringing together of two things that some individuals considered okay to commingle or, or to bring together, but God intended to be kept separate. And if you'll remember back to last week's sermon, Leviticus 8 and 9, Israel is invited to come to the tabernacle for the very first time in worship. And we're told in chapter 8 and chapter 9 that they were careful to do everything just as God commanded. Right? Everything was put in its proper place. Everything that was meant to be brought together was brought together. Everything that was not was kept separate. And at the end of that first day of worship, God expressed his pleasure by demonstrating, by visibly revealing, it says, his, his glory and his presence to the people. 
And then his fire came forth from that, that inner part of the tabernacle, and it consumed the offerings Israel had placed on the altar that day. So that was things being in their appropriate place. But then, moments later, we're told that two priests, Nadab and Abihu, brought their own fire into worship. And they did so probably in a way that was similar to the customs or or worshiping rites of, of things they had seen in Egypt or Canaan. We're told that the fire that they brought into God's presence was not as God commanded. Something God did not desire to be brought into his presence. And so the fire which they bring into God's presence causes God's fire to consume them. And Nadab and Abihu perish on that day. And in the verses which follow this tragedy, God goes on in chapter 10 to instruct Aaron to teach his sons, to teach the priesthood that would would develop to be sober-minded in order that they might distinguish between that which is holy and that which is ordinary or common. That they would know the difference between that which is unclean and that which is clean. And it's, it's God's desire that they would know these things so that they could come to his tabernacle safely. And with these things in mind, we get several more chapters, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, that, that go into great detail about what it, what it means to be clean, what it means to be unclean as Israel comes to worship. And again, it's, it's expressing God's desire that, that his people might belong together with him where he is, as he is in the same place. To be made holy as he is holy, he'll say in chapter 11. So this morning, we're going to to move quickly through, again, a large block of material. But considering what what does it mean for us to be brought into the holy presence of God, and and what's God's desire, what's God's intent in, in establishing that which is clean or unclean? Let me pray for us as we turn to Leviticus 11. Lord, we stand before you, we place our hearts and our ears and our lives under the authority and teaching of your word now. Lord, as we look at this expression of, of law and ritual purity in Leviticus, help us to understand your mind and your heart and your desire for your people then. Help us also to understand what it means to be brought together with you today and now as people under the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray as I teach, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, there's far more detail, far more description in these five chapters than I could do justice to this morning. But I want to kind of give you an outline of the the four major areas of uncleanness that are expressed here. And I want us to then consider, well, why on earth has God chosen these things to be 
the sort of markers or distinguishing factors in what is clean or unclean. What do these things have to do with Israel's relationship with a holy God? And and we're going to sort of look at them. We're going to consider maybe some questions we might have about the text and then then think about what, what fits all of these together. So if we look at chapter 11... We begin with a description of that which is clean or unclean in regard to food. There used to be a proverb in China that some of my Chinese friends used to tell me that in China they eat everything that swims in the ocean except submarines. They eat everything that crawls or goes upon the land except automobiles and anything that flies in the sky short of airplanes. Right? They have a, an expansive cuisine, and palate. But we find in chapter 11 that Israel is meant to be more discerning in what they take as food. And and chapter 11 similarly gives us an assessment of those things which are on the land, in the air, and under the sea, and which can be eaten. So chapter 11 says, for example, that animals with cloven hooves and that chew the cud are appropriate for, for consumption, they are also appropriate sacrifices to be brought into God's temple. However, things like camels or pigs or rabbits are to be considered unclean. Fish with fins and scales are clean, but shellfish or shrimp or other kinds of sea creatures are off limits. Israel is also warned to be careful not even to touch the carcasses of unclean animals, or to touch the body of what was normally a clean animal if it died from natural causes. And so there are all these regulations put in place. And if Israel does not, uh, does not follow them carefully, then they can become temporarily unclean and unable to approach God's presence in the tabernacle. So in this way, each and every meal, right, however many times a day that was, three or four or five times, however many times they came to eat together as a family, they would be reminded of God's desire for them to be clean, to be set apart, to to know what it is to approach him in worship. My guess is to the average omnivore in our culture, right, these rules seem kind of arbitrary, Why this animal and not that animal? And why, if if God, in Genesis 1, it says God created all the creatures and called them good, well, then why are certain creatures here called unclean? What's what's behind this distinction? We'll get to that in a moment. Chapter 12, however, goes on from the things they eat to focus particularly on the experience of childbirth. And it tells us that a mother in in the event of childbirth and in the days that follow is made unclean for a period of time. She's unclean in a a sort of stronger sense for the first few weeks so that that others may not come into close physical contact with the mother. And then for several more weeks beyond that, she's not to come into the, the place of worship at the tabernacle. And if you read chapter 12 more carefully, what we find is that the particular concern is not just with the mother or with the child that's brought forth, but 
particularly the flow of blood that is released during childbirth and in the days which follow. And it's, it's that blood which causes the mother to continue to be unclean for several days. And again, most of us sort of scratch our heads and ask, well, what is this about? Doesn't this almost feel like God is penalizing mothers somehow? Right? A mother who has just sort of partnered with God in, in bringing new life into the world. Why are they to be unclean in those days following childbirth? Chapter 13 goes on to describe a set of particular diseases or or infections that are defiling or unclean. We have two chapters here, 13 and 14. And, And throughout these two chapters, there is one Hebrew word which describes a number of different conditions. And the word is sararat. And sararat can mean growths that would appear on human skin. It could describe mold that might appear on fabric or garments. Uh, And even certain kinds of mildew that would grow on the walls of individual homes. All of these are, are designated by the same term. And centuries later, when we took the Old Testament and it was translated into Greek... This term was described by the Greek word lepros, which we have the English word leprosy, right? Which we now think of as a very particular skin disease. But here the word is being applied to a number of different infectious or or defiling diseases, conditions. Altogether, we have 116 consecutive verses focused on this topic. How to identify these growths, how to to know when or if they cause someone to become unclean, and then what can be done in order to bring about purification. In some cases, simply washing and and cleansing, even shaving the body was all that was needed. But in other cases, those who had chronic skin conditions were commanded to be apart from the encampment of Israel, to to live outside where, where the common people lived in order to keep these two things separate, right? a kind of protection. And while we may even share the estimation of, of the ancient world that these things are unpleasant, we may be concerned about them being contagious or infectious, right? the severity of measures expressed here in Leviticus seems maybe to us a bit stringent. Right? Why is it that God has commanded that all of these things be kept away from worship in the tabernacle. So we have these first three categories, and then the final category of uncleanness that's described is in chapter 15. And here, Israel's attention is brought to one more aspect of ordinary, everyday life that could cause one to be made unclean. And this chapter specifically deals with the fluids that come forth from the reproductive organs of our bodies. And it says that, that for both men and women, right, even under normal, healthy circumstances, right, these discharges had a bearing on whether someone could approach God and, and his holiness in worship. Right, they, could, they could produce a state of uncleanness for several hours or even several days. And again, we wonder at this. Right? How is it that those things which are necessary for procreation, 
right, things that are a vital part of human sexuality, things that God right, has called good in other parts of Scripture, how can they then make someone unclean? Right? What is it that, that God feels or, or says about this that does not belong in his presence? And so if, if you're reading along with me, if you're like me, these several chapters probably raise more questions than they answer for us. And we, we may begin to wonder, well, is there, is there anything that connects these four chapters? Is there any rhyme or reason as to why God calls certain things clean and certain things unclean? And to be honest with you, it's, it's a challenging question to, to struggle with. If you read through and, and you look at all the details... You can read what the rabbis had to say. You can read what theologians and commentators have to say. And, and it is challenging. There are a variety of, of ideas or solutions offered. But this morning I want to look particularly at what the text says. And I think there are a couple clues both in chapter 11 and in chapter 15 that, that tell us part of what God's mind and what God's heart is behind these things he's required. And the first comes near the end of chapter 11 in the food laws. And in the midst of all the animals you can and cannot eat, then the Lord says to Israel, he says, you know, be careful to do these things because I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. God says in the midst of these laws about what is clean and unclean, that his concern is about holiness. And if you think back a few weeks ago to when when Dom shared with us, again, a big part of what God says is, is, is his holiness is this idea that he is other, that he is set apart, that there is no other being, no other God like him. He is holy. And so part of what cleanness is, is attempting to communicate to us is what it means to belong to him, to be separate, to be set apart. God says, this is why I brought you out of Egypt. And there's that idea of, of taking one thing out of another. The idea of making Israel different. Right? To make them a possession, a belonging of God. He says, so that I could be your God and make you holy as I am holy. So God is not like the God of Egypt or the gods of Egypt. He's not like the gods worshipped in Canaan. He says, he is holy. And so if you're, you're going to worship me, then you need to be clean. You need to be set apart. You need to be distinct and different than what you've known in the past. Old Testament scholar John Hartley, who's written a commentary on Leviticus, he says, separation is a major dimension of holiness. Whatever is holy has to be removed from its usual sphere and set apart unto God. Right? Holiness requires this, this distinction, this uh, separation. And we see that idea even more clearly expressed at the end of these chapters on clean and unclean. Look at chapter 15, verse 31, nearly the last verse of this section. God says there, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place. 
Again, there's this emphasis that God's people are to be separate, set apart. And I think we, we may not identify with these laws, with these ideas today. They may be a stretch for us to understand. But we, if we remain the people of God today, there ought to be this same tension. Right? God, if we belong to him, desires for us to be different, desires for us to be set apart. Does your relationship, does my relationship with God, the fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, does it make you distinct and set apart and, and different from your neighbors in some way, in, in the way that you live your everyday life, in the choices you make, the habits, the practices of, of what you do? Right? And, and if we look identical to the world in which we live, if we look identical to our neighbors, then that might be reason for us to, to have some pause and wonder, well, are we holy? Are we separate? Are we set apart in, in the way that God desires for his people to be set apart? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. But if we understand cleanness as, as primarily the need to be set apart, the need to be separate, the need to open up a space for God to show himself to us in a new way, then when we go back through chapters 11 through 15, I think we discover what God might be up to. Remember that uncleanness in these chapters is not always or even primarily about sinfulness or or moral impurity. In some cases it is, but in these chapters especially, there are other things going on that make someone unclean. Instead, what uncleanness typically identifies is things that need to be kept apart, kept separate from the worshiping place, the space where God is to be worshipped by the community. So cleanness is about guarding or sort of putting boundaries around what is holy. Almost like a, like a hedge of protection. You can sort of see that visualized up here. And so why then did God ask certain things to be out of that space? Well, if we go back and we study what's okay to eat and what's not okay to eat in chapter 11, what's okay to bring as sacrifice, what's not okay to bring as sacrifice, we see that many of those animals which were forbidden were connected to the diets, the culture, even the worship of Egypt and Canaan and, and other kind of neighboring peoples. And so a lot of, I think, what's going on in these food laws is setting Israel apart in particular ways in the the most basic habits of their everyday life, in what they ate, right? To remind them that they are different, that they are distinct, and also to make it difficult for them to be assimilated back into the culture of their neighbors, right? There's a separation taking place here. The same thing, I think, is probably part of what's behind the the restriction on particular fluids of the body, things like blood and other discharges, And that's because the temples of Egypt, the temples of Canaan, the temples of Babylon, were places where all kinds of things took place, particularly fertility rites, sexual practices that would make us blush to mention this morning, even the offering of children as sacrifices. But in in laying down these laws, that these particular 
fluids or, or parts of, of our bodies and those things connected to childbirth and human sexuality by saying those things are good but in their appropriate place, right, in the home, but not in the worshiping place of the community, not where God's holiness is, is to be the center and the focus. Right? God is opening up a space for Israel to see and understand that he is different. He is a holy God. And then finally, with some of these other commandments, I think there is a sense that God is trying to communicate to Israel that his holiness must be connected with things which are beautiful, things which are perfect, things which are are spotless, things which are full of life, things which are ordered. Right, And so in a number of these clean and unclean laws, a distinction is made between things marked by death and things marked by life. Things marked by wholeness and things that demonstrate corruption or, or a lack of wholeness. And so only those things which, which are most ordered, most complete, most full of life are to be brought into the presence of God. And, and things marked by death and disorder are to be kept not only outside the tabernacle, but in many cases outside the camp, the encampment of God's people in Israel. And so it's for this reason that dead animals were forbidden to, to be touched and to be brought near the presence of God unless it was for sacrifice. Even the, the contact or the nearness of, of a person to a family member who has passed away was made uh, was something that could make you unclean. I think it's, it's this reason uh, that, that the skin diseases and molds and, and those things were seen as unclean. Right? They were visible reminders of, of sin's kind of curse and corruption of, of the human condition in some way. The tabernacle was set apart. It was regarded as a place where God redeemed his people, where God healed his people, where God brought forth life for his people. And so there are these distinctions made. And so if we think about these five chapters in that way, then the laws about what's clean and unclean aren't so trivial. Instead, the focus is on how God can do something new. Right, how he can make his people different. These purity laws allow Israel to be set apart to see what God was like. Right? The name Yahweh means the God that, that is the I am. I am who I, who I am. I will be who I will be, he says in Exodus. Right? You, have, you have to pay attention. You need that space where you are set apart to understand my holiness. So if we have this, this whole block of teaching... But we sit here this morning in worship, right? We believe we are in the presence of the Holy God, and yet probably every single one of us would be rendered unclean by these definitions, right? We've probably eaten something that's made us unclean. We may have come into contact with someone who is unclean. And so we might wonder, well, well what's different, right? What, what happened? Is there a change somewhere that has taken place between Leviticus 15, and now. I think we're told that that change arrives and takes place in the Gospels. When we begin to read books like the Gospel of John, we see that suddenly this idea of purity and holiness and cleanness 
is changed, right? The old boundaries are stretched and even done away with. In John chapter 1, it says this, right? The Word became flesh. God's Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. What does that sound like but the language of the tabernacle, right? The language of God living in proximity to His people, like in Leviticus. But here, we're not talking about a tent or a building or a place. We're talking about a person, right? The Word that was Jesus Christ. And John goes on to say that we have seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so the glory of God now walks among us, lives among us, ministers among us, not in a tent, but in flesh and blood. And if you begin to read on in John's gospel or in Matthew's gospel or Mark or Luke's gospel, you don't have to go very far before you see Jesus embracing those with leprous skin conditions. Jesus sitting down to eat with sinners. Even touching a woman who has been made unclean by the discharge of blood from her body. Jesus touches Jairus' daughter who has died. Somehow, when Jesus does all these things, the Gospels never say, and then Jesus was made unclean and could not approach the presence of God. No, he is the presence of God. And so, instead of of the unclean overtaking or infecting Jesus, instead, life comes forth. And those people who are sick become healed. Those people in whom death is at work are raised to life. Right? Instead... The holiness of God goes out through Jesus into the world. Right? John says, full of glory, full of grace, full of truth. He goes out in in the mission and the purpose of God and he transforms us. And so the, the presence of God that was once guarded, and appropriately so for Israel, by these laws and these commandments and in the tabernacle, right, is now taken outward through the the power and the presence and the spirit of Jesus Christ. And I think the idea is that Jesus is now bringing those those two things which are meant to belong together, the people of God and the presence of God. And in Jesus Christ, they're made one thing. If you are in Christ, Paul says, you're you're a new creation. The author of Hebrews will say, as we come to Christ, right? he's he's presented the, the perfect sacrifice. He has cleansed us so that we might stand in the holy presence of God. Those things which were separate are now brought together in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to just finish this morning with this few verses from 1 Peter 2. I'd invite you to think about this, to meditate on this this week, what it means to be God's people. Starting in verse 9. Peter has told us that Jesus Christ has become the the perfect cornerstone of God's temple, that he's making us part of that living temple where God's presence dwells. And then in verse 9 he says, "Right, You are no longer like you were in the past, for now you are a chosen people. You are royal priests. You are a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. That's Leviticus 11, right? It's Exodus 19. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he has called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received God's mercy. And so today, what it means to be clean, what it means to be brought together into the presence of God is is our discipleship, is our belonging, is our identity in the person of Jesus Christ. The word of God made flesh and who dwells among us. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would take these concepts, these passages, these ideas, and you would translate them into practices. Lord, show us this week the need for us to be your holy people, to be set apart just as Israel was set apart, to be different and distinct and unique, to watch who you are, But Lord, we do that today by drawing near to Jesus Christ. Gazing upon his holiness, being brought into his body, brought into his life, given for us. Lord, may all we have and all we are belong to you. May we be holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen.